0: Hi, welcome to Tashmah, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beat Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, and I am so excited to be your host. We are now on episode three in our series of talks from spring of 2021 with Hadar faculty member Rabbi Tali Adler. This series is called Torah of Reopening, and if you haven't yet, you can pause here and go back to find lectures one and two. In this episode, Rav Tali dives into the overall picture of what returning and rebuilding will look like in the communal spaces in our lives. What might it look like to return to institutions that we left behind, to the shuls and workplaces and schools? Rav Tali explores the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian exile and draws comparisons to our experience today. You can listen especially for the part where she highlights the moment of truah, the trumpet call as both crying and laughing mixed together. Let's listen.
1: Tonight is our third and final installment of this series, and I want to begin first by thanking you all for joining me in this learning. It has been a really nourishing journey for me over the past few weeks, and I want to thank you. A word about where we are. We began three weeks ago with opening the door. What does it look like to step out of our COVID lives? What are the things that we're afraid of? What does it actually take to be able to leave the cave that we've all been living in over the last more than year? We then last week touched on issues of friendship. We talked about reunions. What have we missed in being separated from our loved ones over the past year? What might it look like to sanctify reunion with loved ones? And today we'll be dealing with the third and final part of the series, Rebuilding. By which I mean, what might it look like to return to the institutions that we left behind before COVID? What might it look like to rebuild the worlds that for so many of us felt like they fell apart when COVID began? For some of us, that will be particularly relevant around issues of shul, synagogue. For others of of us, that will be schools. For some of us, that will be our workplaces or our lives as a whole. And in order to do that, we're going to actually be focusing on a moment of national rebuilding. We'll be looking primarily at texts from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian exile and the rebuilding or first attempts at rebuilding the Second Temple. I want to say a word about that. Today's a very complicated day to be looking at these texts for a lot of reasons. And I think for some of us, a very heartrending day to be looking at those texts in particular. We're not going to enter that discussion as a whole, but I want to just say two things before we begin. The first is really a prayer. Both are really prayers. Um, The prophets were very well aware and did everything in their power to make us well aware that our ability to dwell in the land was contingent and is contingent on our behavior. May we be worthy to dwell in the land. And the second is a prayer for the peace of Jerusalem, a prayer that I think all of us offer up as often as possible. May God bring peace to Jerusalem tonight and always. With that, let's jump into the text. We're going to begin with a dream or more specifically the Psalmist's dream. This is a psalm that many of us say before their Katamazon, um, the Grace After Meals, every Shabbat. And it's a psalm about dreaming about the return to Zion. I'm going to actually read this in the Hebrew and then the English. <speaking in Hebrew> a song of a sense when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we see it as in a dream, or we were like dreamers. Our mouth shall be filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then shall they say among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord will do great things for us, and we shall rejoice. Shubha Adonai at Shibiteinu, ka'afikim ba'negev, Hazorim bedimah, verinah, ikzoru, halokhielach, ubacha. Nosey Meshach Bo, bo berina, no se Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. They who sow in tears shall weep with songs of joy. Although he goes along weeping, carrying the seed bag, he shall come back with songs of joy, carrying his sheaves. This is a dream of what return looks like, what rebuilding looks like, when you haven't come close to return or rebuilding yet. This is a a dream an image that you conjure when you're in the middle of exile. This is the sort of dream that so many of us had of what reopening, what returning, what rebuilding would look like when we felt like we didn't know when or if that would ever happen. And you can tell. Let's look at the descriptions. Then our mouths shall be filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. The image here is one of pure happiness, pure joy, uncomplicated. There is one emotion here, or rather, there are two emotions and they belong to two separate times. Before there was sadness, in exile, there is sadness. Once there is return, there is only joy. I imagine that many of us felt this way in what I'll call the darkest days of COVID. I remember. Last April, when all you heard in Manhattan all the time were the sirens. There were no people on the street. We had only just begun to realize that outside was relatively safe. And what we did was we we sat and we talked about what will it be like when we go back? What will it be like when we're back with family? What will it be like when we go back to show? What will it be like when things begin again? And the dreams that we told ourselves and the dreams that we told each other were dreams of pure joy because that was what we needed at that moment. And because that's what it means to dream of rebuilding when you're far away from it. What we're going to see today is a story of rebuilding as it is actually happening. It's not one of unmitigated joy. It's one of complicated mixed feelings It's one of failed attempts, it's one sometimes of fear. It's also one of determination and creativity and community. And tonight, together, I hope we're going to both read and tell that story together and begin to dream of what our return might look like. Let's jump in to the next text from Nehemiah chapter three. This text tells of the first attempt at laying the foundation of the second temple. In the second year after their arrival at the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua ben Yehotzadak, and the rest of the brother priests and, and Levites, and all who had come up from the captivity to Jerusalem, as their first step appointed the Levites from the age of 20 and upwards to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Two things to notice. First of all, it takes them two years to begin to lay the foundations of the temple. It takes them two years to be able to get that far. Building is not something that happens overnight. Even the beginning of rebuilding is not something that happens overnight. The second thing I want us to notice are the words, and all who had come from the captivity to Jerusalem. One of the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah is that not everyone comes back. I think that we've spent a lot of time worrying about, is everyone going to come back? What does it look like if some people don't? I can't promise what is going to happen in our own lives and our institutions, but Ezra and Nechamia tell the story of a world where not everyone decides to come back, and that's hard, and it's also all right. Part of what's beautiful about Ezra and Nechamia is it lives side by side with Megillah Esther, with the story of the Jews who decided not to come back, not to rebuild, but to do something else. There's a path here of some people will come back to rebuild what there was before, some people might do something different, and nonetheless, both of those options can thrive. Let's keep going and see what it looks like for the people who come back. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of God, priests in their vestments with trumpets, and Levite sons of a with cymbals were stationed to give praise to the Lord as King David had ordained. They're laying the foundation of the temple and what's going on is there's essentially a concert. The priests are standing there and they have their trumpets and the Levium are standing there and they have cymbals, and they're raising music for God. And in this moment, the words, as King David of Israel had ordained are so important. They're bringing us back. They're saying, this is what it once was. King David who dreamed of building the first temple, his vision is being fulfilled now by these people who are coming to rebuild, coming to build the second temple. They sang songs extolling and praising the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love for Israel is eternal. All the people raised a great shout extolling the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord had been laid. If there is a moment that you would imagine would fulfill entirely, then our mouths will be filled with joy, our mouths with laughter, this is that moment. And yet, many of the priests and Levites and the chiefs of the clan, the old men who had seen the first house, wept loudly at the sight of the founding of this house. Many others shouted joyously at the top of their voices, such that the people cannot distinguish the shouts of joy from the people's weeping for the people raised a great trua, the sound of which could be heard from afar. And what happens in that moment, that moment that we would expect to be of unmitigated joy, the old men there who had seen the first temple cried. The people who remembered what once was at this beginning, at this moment of rebuilding, cried and the young people who had never seen it before and only understood this is a new beginning, laughed and those sounds mixed such that they were indistinguishable. And part of what I want us to do before we move on is think for a moment together about what is the crying here? In this moment of rebuilding, what are the people who had seen the first temple crying about? Why does it matter that at this moment that the second temple's foundations are being laid, it is being laid with this combination of tears and joy? Why does it matter what are they crying about? I want us to note two things. One is there's an ambiguity in the text. I've chosen the translation here because I think it's the most accurate the people not distinguish the shouts of joy from the people's weeping. But there are those who translate this pasuk actually instead as the people could not distinguish the shouts of joy because of the people's weeping, meaning that the crying actually drowned out the joy. Two different takes on what the experience here is. Is it of crying and laughing and joy mixed together such that the sound becomes indistinguishable? or Is it actually, in this moment, that should be so filled with joy, crying actually outweighs it? We'll come back to that, I think, at the end. The other is, for the people raised a great trua. There are different ways, again, of translating this term. Some people understand it as the people raised a great shout, as in the tumult and the noise was so much that it drowned out distinguishable sounds. Others hear this as referring actually to truah as we would recognize it from Rosh Hashanah, the sounds coming from the trumpets. We're in a few minutes going to transition into a source that actually deals directly with Rosh Hashanah. But I want us right now to keep in mind, what is this truah? Why does it matter that all of these are melding together? I'm going to go to the chat. Daniel Fink, crying carries the whole trauma of the past years of exile. Lisa Abrams, gratitude. Mary Wasserman, it's never the same. They mourn the first version. I think we're gonna see something similar to that in Rashi. Art Vernon, they cry what was lost and they shout for what is to come. Kathy Liftman, maybe some are crying because people they knew are not there with them. That's beautiful and heartrending. Gary Goldberg, you don't really know what you have until it's gone. Catherine Weir, fear of repeat destruction. And I think we're going to see some more of that in a moment when we go to chapter eight. Ruth Gonski, the suffering and loss, exile, loss of their way of life. Faith, joy, down to release from so much suffering mixed with joy. We hit on so many of the central points, release of trauma. In this moment where things are actually starting to come together, you can actually let all of the sadness, all of the fear, all of the loss out. Being there without people who you love, I've never thought of that, but what does it mean to have left your family and friends to engage in this project that you dreamed of and then be standing there without them? Gratitude, crying because you all your life have dreamed that maybe this would happen again one day and there you are. And also the feeling of, and yet, This is just not the same. I've waited for this, I've dreamed of this, and yet I remember what it used to be like and it is not that now. Let's take a look at Rashi, who I think expresses this beautifully. The temple. When they would see the building of this temple, they would weep because they remembered the large building of the first temple. And many who had not seen the building of the first temple were rejoicing and shouting for joy with a loud voice out of the great joy that they had emerged from their exile. Rashi, they're crying because they remember something bigger and grander, and this isn't it. Let's remember for a moment, the first temple is built by Shlomo HaMelech, by King Solomon. He's a king, he's wealthy, the cedars, that builds the walls of the temple come in on rafts from downstream from Lebanon. And this temple, the foundation just being laid now, is built by a relatively poor group of immigrants from Babylonia. And for Rashi, the people who had seen the first temple look at it and are crying because it's not the same. And yet, The people who have nothing to compare it to are able to experience it with unmitigated joy. I want us to keep this for now. We're going to come back to it towards the end, but for now, I want us to keep this idea of what will it be like when we go back? For many of us, thank God, we'll be going back to the same buildings. We'll be going back to institutions that may in actuality be largely the same, but we're not going to be the same. We'll have passed through a period of time, a period of loss. And it's different to walk into a building when you haven't been there for a year, when you haven't been there for two years. It's different to walk into a community when over the past two years, people have experienced loss or left or realized that their lives are just different now. And there are moments of that walking in where we are going to experience just, probably just the impulse to cry because why is it not the same? I wanted it to be the same. I dreamed of it being the same. I dreamed then my mouth would just be full of laughter. And yet, there's also the sound of joy. There's also the sound of laughing. There's the I am back now, and it may not be the same, but it is here, it is real. And we'll revisit that in a moment. I want to just read a few responses that came in. Alana Axel said, I think often crying and gladness can be in the same emotional expression. One is dependent on the other, and they heighten each other. Adrian Rubin, this speaks to the challenge of comparisons and expectations. Absolutely. Rabbi Forrester, also in the practical, will be distance, masked, not eaten. Yeah, there, there will be something about our experience that in some ways, if we walk in expecting what there was before, it will feel poor. I think what we're about to see is that there are other ways, though, in which if we actually embrace what is different, we can make things richer. I want to read just one more comment, two our comments. Rebecca Tron says you can't go back. I think that's the, the tragedy of the Shir Hamalut that we say. The, the Shir Hamalut that we say that we read at the beginning dreams of simple return, and that's exactly true. Going back is never simple. Jay Schwartz, before we dive back in, just like the 70 faces are fac- facets of Torah, each of us experiences or understands our world in different ways. The trua may be the incandescent effect of everyone expressing their truth simultaneously. Returning to our old lives from the quiet of isolation will be fraught with overwhelming sensory inputs, which result in strong emotions. I love that. Especially because I think that question of experiencing and expressing the world in different ways is exactly what the next source we're going to see deals with. Nehamiah chapter 8. I'll also say, by the way, that these are um, two of my favorite chapters of all of Tanakh. There's a small plug. A lot of us get bored before Ezra and Nehamiah turn around in our cycles of Tanakh learning. They're worth it. They're really worth it. I highly recommend. I hope tonight will give you a little taste of that. The piece we're about to read is what I'll call a rededication ceremony. It's not rededication of the temple, though this time it's actually rededication in some way, I think, of the Torah itself. Let's take a look at what that means. The entire people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. In the Hebrew, this is ke'ish echad. There is a Rashi in Shemot that talks about when the people come to Mount Sinai, come to Har Sinai, the text says Vayichan Sham. the people camped there, but it's Vayichan in the singular, and Rashi comments there echad, balev echad like one person with one heart, i.e. the people when they came to Sinai were united as a single entity. Rashi lifts that language, Ki'ish Echad, from here. The entire people assembled Ki'ish Echad as one person in the square before the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the scroll of the Torah of the teaching of Moses, with which the Lord had charged Israel. Ezra serves in many ways in these books as the religious leader of the Jewish people. And here there actually is a request for Ezra to bring out the Torah and we'll have what is for the rabbis, possibly the first public Torah reading and the basis in the rabbinic tradition of the Torah readings that we do each Shabbat to this day. On the first day of the seventh month, this is, of course, Rosh Hashanah. It's the seventh month because if we begin counting from Nisan, then Tishrei is the seventh month. So on the first day of the seventh month on what will but come to be known as Rosh Hashanah, Ezra the priest brought the teaching before the congregation, men and women and all who could listen with understanding. He'd read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from the first light until midday, to the men and the women and those who could understand. The ears of all the people were given to the scroll of the teaching. So we have a ceremony here. The people are standing in the central square. Ezra has brought out the Torah and he is reading from the crack of dawn until noon. And who's there? Not only the people who would be there if this was the temple and this was a holiday, a pilgrimage festival. It's not just the men. It actually is men, women, and any child old enough to understand. This is a national assembly, and the way that it is being conducted is through Torah reading. Ezra the scribe stood upon a wooden tower made for this purpose. And beside him stood Matatiah, Shema, Anaya, Orya, Chilkia, and Maaseya at his right, and at his left, Pedaya, Mishael, Machia, Chashum, Zachariah, Mishulam. So let's just make sure we have the optics of this. Ezra is standing on top of a wooden tower. I would say that um, tower is probably not the correct word. I would say more probably more like an elevated stage. And why does that matter in this moment? It matters because in this text that is going on and on about how everyone was there, everyone could see him. This is not just about you are here to be passive. It is about you are here, you see You hear, you're involved. And that continues. Ezra opened the scroll in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Let's make sure that we are just really picturing this. Ezra is not only reading, he's making sure everyone can see the Torah. This is particularly meaningful for me, by the way, just to understand what it means to see the Torah. I grew up in an Orthodox shul where the mechitza was high enough and the women's section was far enough away from where the Torah reading was happening that I was actually relatively old, I think a teenager, before I ever really saw what the inside of a Torah looked like. Even during hadba, when they raised the Torah, I was always too far away. This The idea that Ezra is making sure that everyone can see the Torah is a way of saying, you are included, you are a part of this. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with hands upraised. Then they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all of Ezra's companions and the Levites explained the teaching to the people when the people stood in their places. Next innovation, not only is everyone included, not only must everyone see, there's actually an explanation that goes on. We're changing the the script here, I would say. It is not only about are you able to understand the Torah as it is written, it is we take it upon ourselves, whoever the leadership is, has the responsibility to make sure that people are able to understand. They read from the scroll of the teaching of God, translating it and giving the sense so they understood the reading. And here we come to what I think is one of the most beautiful moments in all of Tanakh. Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were explaining to the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, you must not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they listened to the words of the teaching. We've come back to tears again. There's a lot of crying in the Gambia as understandably. The people are in tears, and it's understandable. Let's talk about some of the reasons they might be in tears. First of all, if you continue reading in this chapter on your own, we're not going to get to it. There are parts of the Torah that have been entirely forgotten. In a few sentences, we're not going to go there tonight the people are going to discover there is this thing called Sukkot that we have not done in a very long time. And I imagine that there are other places in the Torah where they're listening and they realize no one in my living memory has ever done this. No one ever taught me this. This was not part of my inheritance. And that makes them cry. There are other possibilities. What about all the parts of Torah that are actually a little bit terrifying? Let's think back to the people's reaction when they stood at Sinai the first time. It was a terrifying moment. And it's possible that Ezra here is actually in some ways trying to reenact that. All of the people together are listening to the Torah all at once. It's very Sinai-like. And possibly the people have every reason to be scared. What if we can't live up to this? What if it's too much? What if actually we stumble, we fail, and God does everything that God is saying that God will do if we don't observe the commandments? And also, what if this is just a moment of release? What if like the moment of the laying of the foundation of the temple, the people are thinking about how long it has been since the people read the Torah together? But Ezra doesn't go down that path. Ezra chooses, Ezra makes a choice that this is going to be a different sort of day. And I want us to think together a little bit about why. What's at stake for Ezra in making that decision? And for that, let's go back and read a little bit more. This day is holy to the Lord your God. You must not mourn or weep for all the people will weep in as they listen to the words of the teaching. He further said to them, go eat choice foods and drink sweet drinks and send portions to whoever has nothing prepared. The phrase here is actually Mishloch Manot." For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be sad for your rejoicing in the Lord is the source of your strength. The Levites were quieting the people saying, hush for the day is holy, do not be sad. Then all the people went to eat and drink and send portions and make great merriment for they understood the things they were told. I want us to pay attention to how the text leaves off. Why were the people able to go and eat and drink and make merriment? Because they understood. Because Ezra had made decisions all along that meant that they would understand. Ezra made decisions to tell them that God is actually the source of your strength, not something to be feared. And that actually enables joy. I want to take a moment to look at some of what's happened in the chat before we go on. Gary Goldberg, there's a need to embrace the real possibilities that our return offers to enrich the experience in ways that would not have ever been conceivable before the period of absence and what was learned and appreciated through the course of that absence from being in person together in the sanctuary. Amazing. I think, I think that that is part of what Ezra is doing here. What's at stake for Ezra in all of this? Why is it so important that the people learn, that the people understand, that people are all there together? Ezra had experienced what it was for the people to be without one another, without Torah. And in this moment, he is actually saying, I know what that was. And now the engagement must be different because there is too much at stake here. Jay Schwartz, fear remembers and looks back, hopes looks forward in time. I hope that we can focus on the world we want to help bring into being rather than what was. Reintegrating into society is potentially an opportunity to recalibrate ourselves to be more mindful, thankful, and make the most to balance our precious gifts, memory, and time. That's beautiful. Ronnie Levin, eating choice food, very different from Sinai. Yes and no. I think we'll come to that in a moment. Sari Loffer, interesting to set up a tension between holiness and sadness, doesn't holiness encompass multiple emotions? I think that's right, this is a tension that exists at least throughout the time of the Ge'onim, the question about what does it look like to balance emotions and holiness and they play out specifically in Rosh Hashanah. There's a tradition up until the time of the Ge'onim that maybe you are actually supposed to fast on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. We definitely do not do that today, but there's an impulse there of maybe there is room there on that day of such holiness for the fear, the sadness, all the feelings that Ezra here is trying to ward off. We're not going to really delve into that today, but I wanted to say that absolutely is an impulse that's there. Daniel Fink echoed that with it seems deeply problematic to tell people not to be sad. Why not acknowledge the sadness? I think we're going to come back to that. And I want to finish for now with Akiva Madenson's comment. There is something important about breaking off Torah study to attend to the real emotional needs and responses of those listening and learning. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. I want us to think about the last time this happened. If we go back to Sinai and to do that, I want us to look at just a few texts from Sinai. This is from Shemot 20. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the blare of the horn and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. If what's happening here in Ezra is essentially us receiving the Torah a second time in some ways, the feeling could not be more different. What happened there? There was noise, but it was a cacophony. There is thunder, lightning, blare of the horn, mountain smoking. There's a sensory experience that does not at all lend it to hear and understand. There is no one standing there and explaining. There is no one holding up the scroll so that they see it. And as a result, the people are afraid. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will obey, but let God not speak to us lest we die. Their first impulse is a feeling that's very similar perhaps to what the people are feeling in Ezra of fear. Why does Ezra have to calm the people down? Because maybe the people are feeling exactly what they once felt, what their distant ancestors felt when they stood at Sinai, which is fear. This is too much. We actually don't want to be the direct recipients of it. Be an intermediary. Moses answered the people. Do not be afraid. Moses answers, and Moshe answers in the same words Don't be afraid. But for him, the reason is very different. For God has come only in order to test you. Let's scroll down and in order that the fear of him may ever be with you so that you do not go astray. So the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. If what happens in Ezra is the second giving of the Torah, then in some ways Ezra is echoing and in some way he is changing the story. The people are behaving very much as they did at the first giving of the Torah, which is with fear. This is a lot, this is holy, this is terrifying. And Ezra begins the same way that Moshe did: do not be afraid. But whereas for Moshe, the do not be afraid was, you're having the proper fear of God, that's good. I will go and be an intermediary for you so that you don't have to interact directly with this overwhelming holiness. Ezra changes the script. Do not be afraid because this is a happy thing. Do not be afraid because God is your strength. Do not be afraid. And they weren't afraid because they understood. Let's take a look at one more verse. Someone mentioned that there wasn't an eating and drinking at Sinai, and that it isn't exactly true. A lot of us tend to um, forget about the last part of Parashat Mishpatim. We think about Mishpatim as just rules upon rules upon rules. But at the end of Parashat Mishpatim, we have what I will actually referred to as one of the strangest moments in all of Torah. I would say that it's up here, along with when the fiery angel of God comes and tries to kill Moshe when he's living Midian. Those are my top two strangest moments for sure. Then Moshe and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel ascended and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire like the very sky for purity. Yet he did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. There was eating and drinking at the first Mount Torah, but who did it? Only the leaders. The people who were at the top of the hierarchy, the people who were allowed to approach God. What's Ezra doing by saying, go eat and drink and be merry and send food to the people who have no food because this is a holy day for God? Maybe what Ezra's doing is saying, this time, all of you are the people who are approaching God. This time at this second giving of the Torah, the story is different. This time, the story is about you understanding and just like Moshe and Aaron and Nadab and Avihu feasted then, you must feast now. Because this time, all of you, in some way, are Moshe and Aaron and Nadef and Abiyo. I want to take us back for a moment to where we started. We started with a text that spoke largely about what does it feel like to come back to the same place, knowing that it will never be what it was before. What is it like to experience those moments of loss and say it's not the same? Here we have the other side of that coin. Here, if we... Accept the idea that what Ezra is doing is essentially giving the Torah again to the people. Ezra is embracing the, it is the same and yet not the same. This is the same Torah, but this time we are telling the story differently. This is the same Torah, but this time it belongs to all of you. This is the same story, but this time the story is not one of fear, it is not one of distance, instead it's one of joy, and I would say also of love. Sending each other food, making sure that those who don't have food have what to eat that day, that's about accepting Torah through love of one another. Ezra is essentially taking that moment of, is it like what it was before, and saying no, and we can celebrate that. We actually must tell the story differently when we come back to the same place. There's actually something about that that's not to be mourned but must be celebrated and can actually be a gift, can actually be a blessing if we do it right. I wanna take a moment to look at some of the responses in the chat and then we're going to finish up with Ezra. I wanna read what Rebecca Krasner wrote. I wanna lift up the idea that everybody who could understand was included. How can we lift up inclusion as we move forward? Who was left out before that we can make sure to include this time? I think that's exactly the right question. And I want to just talk about that for one moment, if I may. One thing we learned during this time is that there are ways to bring Jewish life, Jewish community, Jewish learning to people who often wouldn't have been included before, or even just to bring it to more people who might have been included in more ways. The Zoom teaching, the Zoom learning that we have done, the Zoom Jewish communal events that we have done over the past year plus has been a gift. And now the challenge is to think about how do we continue to use that in the right ways? And what are more ways that we can bring people in, include people, say, this is yours, and you must understand when we actually are back in person. What does it look like to be the Ezra of this moment? That's going to be an answer that will take a while to answer, but I think that's the beginning of the question. That's the beginning of the work. Rabbi Forrester said, how does Ezra teach them such that they believe that rejoicing in the Lord is the source of their strength? Is he instrumental or sharing that impulse with them? That's a beautiful question. I don't, I don't know for sure. I think that part of my answer is that Ezra actually constructs ritual here, which I think allows people to really feel that. When we spend half a day in Shul on Rosh Hashanah, praying, learning, doing whatever we do, hearing the shofar, and then we go home and we sit with our families and loved ones, we create an experience, much like what Ezra is doing here. I'm talking about Rosh Hashanah because this took place on Rosh Hashanah, where we combine that awe with that love and that joy where the two melt into each other. And I think Ezra is actually creating ritual, these two parts of the day, where he's trying to foster that feeling, where he's trying to say holiness and joy, holiness and love live right next to each other. And you actually have to understand that those two feed into each other. Jay Schwartz, how do we balance the democratization of Ezra with Exodus 19, where the elders and the people just followed and didn't need to understand? I think that's The right question. And I think that I don't have a concrete answer for that, but we're about to look at a piece of Gemara that I think offers a metaphor for how to understand that. We'll look at that in a minute. Toby Hoffman, the thunder and lightning and smoke is what we can experience in our own bodies every time we meet with people. It has always been that way. Now is a unique opportunity to really feel that and rejoice and do Torah learning with everyone we meet. That's beautiful, thank you. Let's take a look at Sanhedrin, where I think that what they are expressing is this idea of Ezra is telling the same story in different words. Ezra is telling the same story, but giving different people access. Let's take a look at that. It is taught in the Rabbi Yossi says Ezra was suitable for the Torah to be given by him to the Jewish people, had Moshe not first, This is, in many ways, an outrageous thing to say. Ezra could have given the Torah to the people. Moshe just got around to it first. There is no, I think, stronger way of saying, in some ways, what Ezra does is re-give Torah to the people. With regard to Moshe, the verse states, and Moshe went up to God. And with regard to Ezra, the verse states, this Ezra went up from Babylon. The echo is went up and went up. Moshe went up to God. Ezra went up from Babylon. And he was a ready scribe in the Torah of Moshe, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given. So what the drash here is doing is saying, there's a parallel, went up and went up. And Ezra's went up comes right before telling us that he was a scribe in the Torah of Moshe. So what does his went up mean? It's linking back to the Torah of Moshe. That's how we get to the fact that Ezra in some way could have given the Torah had Moshe not conversed. With regard to Moshe, the verse states, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and ordinances. And with regard to Ezra, the verse states, for Ezra had set his heart to seek the Torah of the Lord his God and to do it and teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. One thing to notice here, why does Moshe do what he does? Why does Moshe give Torah to the people? Because he's commanded. Why does Ezra give Torah to the people because his heart had set him to it? There's a difference here. The second time, it's not just out of commandedness, the givenness of Torah. It's out of love. It's out of a compulsion of the heart. And even though the Torah was not given by him, the script was changed by him. As it is stated, and the writing of the letter was written in the Aramaic script and set forth in the Aramaic tongue. Ezra gives the same Torah, but the writing is different. The actual script is different. And I think metaphorically, part of what this is saying is Ezra has the same Torah, but he makes it more legible. He makes it more readable. He gives it in a different script such that the people are able to understand. We are coming back to the same place. We are coming back to the same moment. We're telling the same story, but we're telling it in a different key. This time the story is not one of fear. This time the story is one of joy. This time the story is not one of some people eat and drink. It's one of everyone eats and drinks because everyone gets the Torah because the Lord is their strength. Because that's the story that matters. Because that was for Ezra the punchline of the story all along. I want to leave us here and I want to leave us with two final thoughts. This Rosh Hashanah, please God, is going to for many of us be the first time back in Shul in full swing. I imagine please God by then we'll be able to be indoors, maybe many of us without masks. I don't know for sure but Maybe there might even be something resembling Kiddush and Shul again, for those of us for whom that is what we have been missing. Not me, but my husband has been. That has been what he missed. And we're going to experience two things that I want to highlight from today. One is the moment of the Truah. Earlier, we talked about the trua as the trumpet call. And what was that? That was the laughing and the crying mixed together. That was the, our feelings are so complicated because this both is and isn't what we remember, because it was hard to be apart, and because we are going to look around and see some ways in which it just does not feel the same. What I want to offer us for that moment and for the moments of rebuilding going forward is what Ezra offers us. When you return to the same place and know that it will not be the same, when you go to rebuild and know that in some ways you will never recapture what was, yes, there might be mourning that goes with that, but there is also the opportunity of joy. There is the opportunity to tell the same story, but to tell it differently. There is the opportunity to give the story to more people than ever had it before there's the opportunity to take the story that you love, to take the community that you love, to take the Torah that you love and for the first time make it legible in ways that it wasn't before to people that it wasn't before. And what I want to wish for all of us in this exciting, terrifying, joyful, all of those feelings mixed together time leading up to when we will please God all be in shell together in Rosh Hashanah is the ability to cry when we need to, laugh when we need to, be able to do both of those things at the same time because it's important. And also to know that we have the ability to choose how we tell our stories and that in coming back for this second time and coming back to our communities again that might actually be the biggest gift that we've been given and that please God we should take advantage of it please God we should treat it as such we're going to end off here I want to thank you all so much for joining me over the past three weeks this has been a real gift and I am looking forward please God to getting the opportunity to learn with some of you many of you again sometime thank you so much everyone have a great night bye
0: This was the final lecture in a three-part series. We have some really great stuff coming up this next season, including a multi-part class with Rabbi Shai Held on love, a really fun book talk program, and other great classes. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. This episode of Tashma was produced by Rabbi Effie Unterman with help from Rebecca Kersner and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killup. It has been a pleasure to learn with you.